Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Just pray, Lord, that you make our hearts good soil this morning, Lord. That the, the Word of God, your Word, would go deeply into our hearts and your Spirit would cause it to come alive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we're in the fourth week now of uh, our series in the Psalms. We're calling it Mixtape because it's our favorite songs in the Psalms. And there's a whole bunch of types of Psalms. We talked about this the first week, but there's Psalms for every uh, emotion you might have, every situation you might be in. And this Psalm is different than the last two that we've done. This Psalm is one of the Psalms of repentance. And there are seven of them in the Psalms, songs of repentance. Repentance is returning to the Lord. Repentance is when we, we see our sin for what it is and we turn from our sin and we, and we turn to the Lord. And so this psalm is really about repentance. It's a psalm of how to return home. And so my prayer has been for any of us that are here that need to return home this morning, that, that that's what the Lord would do in our hearts. And so um, it is a psalm of repentance. And you might think, well, what, what was David repenting of? And actually, it says, if you look right here, the little subtitle that it has right under the heading, Psalm 51, that unlike a lot of your headings in your Bible, a lot of times you'll look, read through Romans and it says like, uh, the, you know, the battle within or the have a little heading. Those were added later. This heading, though, came with the psalm. And this heading tells us what David was repenting of. It says this, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him again after he had gone into Bathsheba. And the full and sordid tale of David's sin that this prompted is in first, uh, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And I'll just briefly recap that. I won't read that whole thing to you. It happened around 1000 B.C., it was springtime, and it was the time when the kings would normally go out to battle, go out to war. David didn't, though. He didn't go out to battle like he should have. He stayed at home. He's relaxing in his palace. We don't know why. He'd been king for about 20 years at that point. And it says that David woke up in the afternoon, got up off his couch, so he's obviously not doing a whole lot, walks around on his rooftop, and he notices a beautiful woman. He notices this beautiful woman bathing. Now, there's nothing wrong with David seeing this woman. There's nothing wrong with him noticing she was beautiful. Well, the problem was what happened next. It was the second look he took, and then the third, and then he looked longer, and then he started to ask about her. He said, asked somebody, who is this? And they said, this is um, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then he said, get her for me. And then she came, and he, he slept with her. And not only was Bathsheba somebody, some other man's wife, Bathsheba was the wife of a man who was out to battle at that moment for him. Okay, like this is a guy that's out on the battlefield risking his life for David and his people, and he's betrayed him like this. And not only that, but Uriah was a Hittite, guys. Uriah wasn't an Israelite. He wasn't somebody that owed David any allegiance, right? This is a man that had left his own country and his own people to fight loyally for David because he believed in David. And he believed in David's people. And, um, but David had no loyalty in response, right? David wants what he wants, and what he wants is Uriah's wife, so he takes her. And David seems to get away with it, right? Until Bathsheba sends word, and the word is that she's pregnant. And so David scrambles, and he calls Uriah home, and he feels like he can fix this. He calls Uriah home, hoping that Uriah will come home, sleep with his wife, and then later when she has the baby, oh, it's Uriah's baby, right? That's the plan anyway. There's a problem, though. Uriah won't do it. He comes home. Um, he's eager to get back on the battlefield to defend their people. And uh, Uriah says, I don't feel right about going home and enjoying my wife when the troops are out on the battlefield. And so David tries harder, you know, he gives him a bunch of food, he liquors him up, he hopes to get him drunk and send him back, and he does. He gets him intoxicated, he still won't go home. 
He still won't go home, guys, because Uriah's a better man drunk than David is sober at this point in his life, right? David was unwilling to confess his sin. And in being unwilling to confess his sin, he did even worse things. I think this is something for us to realize. Like, the better thing is to confess your sin because a lot of times the sins of cover-up would be even worse. And they were. In the morning, David wrote a letter to his commander, Joab, and the letter was... This, he instructed him, set Uriah in the forefront in the farthest fighting, and when, the, when they come to attack him, draw back so he'll be killed. It's a death sentence. He gives this letter to Uriah. Uriah's carrying his own death sentence, doesn't know it. And that's exactly what happens. His plan, David's plan to murder Uriah to cover up his adultery works. He's killed in battle. David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. You know, cover-up's complete again, right? You know, maybe when the baby comes, they'll say, oh, the baby's premature. Or, oh, it's Uriah's baby. Isn't that great that David would raise Uriah's baby? What a hero, people might say. Who's to know any different? You know, who's to say any otherwise? Well, at the end of 2 Samuel 11, after describing all of his cover-ups, the last sentence is ominous. It says this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Like, that's the way that chapter ends. Who's to know, right? The Lord, guys, disciplines those he loves. And he loves David way too much to let him get away with this. And so he sends Nathan. So in 2 Samuel 12, I'll read that for you. He sends Nathan the prophet. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, And this is great because Nathan's going to set David up. He didn't just come and tell him what he did. He tells him a story. And this is a story he tells David. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and one poor. And the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children, and it used to eat his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. This is the little, the little lamb. It was like a daughter to him. And now there came a, tra- a traveler to the rich man, who was, and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest when he came. But he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then it says, and then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, that man deserves to die. And then Nathan turns to him and says to David, you are that man. And that's what led up to this. So Psalm 51, guys, is the aftermath of that. Psalm 51 is the aftermath in David's life. It's an extremely personal song. It's kind of strange that we even have it, in a way, because it's like his personal prayer journals, uh, recounting his worst sin, you know, to the Lord, and we have it here to read, and God's people had it to sing. Don't you just love, guys, how the Bible never attempts to clean up the stories of God's people? Not only doesn't attempt to clean them up, records them, and not only records them, but like puts on the psalm, hey, by the way, this is the particular sin that it was right? I mean, we read in Jesus's genealogy, it says, you know, the whole line, and it says, by Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, you know, like, I mean, there's an attempt to even highlight the sins of God's people, because none of the people in the Old Testament are the true hero of the story. The true hero of the story is the Lord, is Jesus. And so, while this psalm, guys, is a deeply personal confession of David's to the Lord, it's also meant to be instructional to us, God wants us to use Psalm 51 to know how to turn from our sin. It's a template, right? It's a template of a prayer of repentance, and we should use it. We should use it whenever we need it. And, and what does this template teach us? It teaches us three things. It teaches us the confession that God expects, the forgiveness God gives, and the freedom that God offers. So we're going to look at 
confession, forgiveness, and freedom. First, the confession that God expects. What kind of confession does God expect? Because we live in a culture, especially politically, where there's apologies that are not apologies, right? You hear these all the time on the news, you know, oh, so-and-so's apologizing. You listen, you're like, was that an apology? Seemed like an explanation, you know? Like, um, what kind of confession does God expect? First, God expects us to call sin, sin, right? Sin's not a popular word in our culture, but if we want forgiveness, we have to realize that forgiveness is given to those who have sin. <laughs> if my thing's not a sin, there's no forgiveness to give. We need to see that it's sin. Hebrew, and the Hebrew in here, guys, is very colorful when it describes sin. In verses 1 and 2, it describes it with three different words. It uses the word transgression, iniquity, and sin. And they all have a little different feel. For example, transgression in verse 1 in the Hebrew is pasha, and it means to be willfully rebelling against someone you owe allegiance to. So transgression has the, the, the sense of it's, it, we're responsible for our sin. It's a willing rebellion against God. And so even though we may be self-deceived or we may be enslaved to our sin, we're still responsible. It's deliberate. That's what the word pasha, transgression, means. Um, the word iniquity in verse 2 has a different feel, though. It's avah, and it means to be twisted out of shape. So it's a different type of word. It's just like a bone might be dislocated at a joint and cause all kinds of pain and tissue destruction around it. We, guys, when our hearts are not centered on God, are twisted out of joint. Our hearts twisted out of joint. We have twisted beliefs. We have twisted drives. The word iniquity tells us that there's something deeply wrong with us. We're twisted. The, the third word that he uses here, the word sin, is a word that means to miss the mark or to fail. And this word has a different feel. This word says that we have failed to live as God would have us, have, have us to live in harmony with God and with others and with the world. And that there are sins of two types. There's sins of omission, things that we should have done that we didn't do, like loving and serving our neighbors and loving our God with our whole heart. And there's sins of commission, doing things that we should not do. The old book of common prayer says it this way, we have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. It, it, sin shows us that we've missed the mark. We've missed the purpose we were made. We were made, guys, to glorify God, right? We were made to be like little mirrors on a 45-degree on a angle that God's glory would come down, bounce off of us to people, that people would see us and they would see God. They would see what God's like, that they would see us and they would see Christ in us and they'd go, man, God must be an amazing being because he's made people like this. But the flip side's happened, Right? What's really happened is one of the main reasons people don't believe in God is because of people, right? How can there be a good God and all these things happening in the world? They're mainly done by people, right? We've missed the mark. So each one of these um, words has a little different feeling. Transgression is rebellion. I'm responsible for it. Iniquity is twisted. I've got something wrong with me that creates this. And then sin describes our failure. David also calls his sin evil. He says in verse 4, I've done what is evil in your sight. God expects us to call it sin. God also expects us to name it specifically. And I think this is really important. When we repent of our sin, we should name it, and we should use like a biblical name for it, you know? Oh, Lord, I'm sorry that I've been so edgy today is not a repentance of sin. I don't know what edgy is. What, is, what does David say in verse 14? He says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, okay? He's like very clear. It's a very clear sin that he wants to be forgiven of. Um, God also expects us to own our sin. Look at verse 4. He says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Um, David's not saying here that he didn't wrong Uriah and Bathsheba. He knows he did that. What he's saying is that his sin is ultimately towards God. Guys, sin is a personal offense towards God. 
I think a lot of times we miss this. It's not like, you know, when you get pulled over. So you're driving real fast, you get pulled over by the CHP. Um, it's not personal to the officer. He's not like, hey, you were speeding and it hurts me. You know what I mean? Like, he doesn't do that. And, you know, you go to court and you get a judgment of something. You know, the judge doesn't say, like, it really breaks my heart that you would treat my laws this way. It's not personal, right? But when we sin against God, we're sinning against not just the lawmaker, but our creator. It's more like sinning against a parent, right? Even more so, that he's given us life and he's sustained us and he's kept us alive every day and he's sustained us all the way through it and we've rebelled against him. It's personal, right? And so David says, it's against you that I've sinned. Uh, when Nathan came to David, he said, he, he said that the Lord said through Nathan, he said, you've despised me, right? God says, you despised me by doing this. You know, it's personal. And so what David's saying here is he's saying, I've despised you and you're right to judge me. I love that he says, you're right to judge me. Look at verse four again. It says, I've done what is evil in your sight, so you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He totally agrees with God judging him. He completely agrees with it. There's no like bitterness at God for making these laws. There's no, none of that. It's like, I'm wrong. If you judge me, you are right, right? He makes no attempt to rationalize his sin or to minimize it. He doesn't say, you know, well, if, you know, if Bathsheba hadn't been, you know, bathing like that and, you know, those kinds of things. He doesn't do any of that, right? And he doesn't call it, you know, a slip up or a mistake or this isn't really the way I am. I don't know what happened. It's none of that, right? In fact, look at verse 5. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's saying, I have a deep lifelong bent against you, Lord. It's like, what I did, that is me. That is something I do. It's something that's deeply wrong with my heart. He says in verse 6, he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach wisdom in the secret heart. He's saying, like, you see my heart. <laughs> you see my heart. I'm wrong inside. I'm not just wrong in the things I did. I'm not a good guy that sometimes does bad things. Like, I'm a bad guy that sometimes does good things, surprisingly, you know? Like, he says he's wrong in his heart. It says, he says here that, that the Lord desires truth in the inward being in the secret heart. Guys, God sees our hearts. He cares about our hearts. And, um, and, it's, and it's right for him to do so. You remember when Jesus said, he goes, don't just clean the outside of the cup and the bowl and inside it's filthy. Like clean the inside and then the outside will be clean. Imagine you come to my house and I give you, you know, a mug with some water in it. And it's just beautiful on the outside. Nicest mug you've ever seen. You look inside and there's black mold in it. And you're like, hey, you're trying to be nice. You're like, hey, Eric, so like I'd kind of like a different glass. Like what's wrong with it? Well, you know, it's kind of like dirty. It's like, why are you so picky? Look how beautiful it is on the outside. No, right? It's, and, and the thing is, guys, is that the Lord drinks from our hearts. Right? When he drinks from our lives, he drinks from our hearts. And so it's our hearts that he wants. He wants our hearts that are right. Um, and so the confession that he expects is that we call it sin, name it specifically, and own it completely. And what kind of forgiveness does he give? This is so cool because, like, David has to be forgiven. And forgiveness, guys, is the greatest thing that anyone can give or receive. It's like the greatest gift, forgiveness. There's nothing better. And what human beings call forgiveness is usually not real forgiveness. Like, mere human forgiveness is, you know, you're told you're forgiven, and then maybe a little later they bring it up, and the relationship kind of dies, and you find out they never really let it go, right? But real forgiveness is something that only God can do and people that are vitally connected with God. Like, unless we're vitally connected with God, we can't forgive like God forgives. Well, what is forgiveness? Well, what's really cool is just like sin has all those levels and layers and flavors to it, so does forgiveness. 
And so he describes forgiveness with several metaphors. The first one is God's forgiveness destroys our sin. Look at verse 4. He says, blot out my transgression. In verse 9, he says, blot out my iniquity. When the Bible talks about something you blot out, it, that person or thing or people is completely destroyed. And you can think about in the Old Testament, like blot them out, you know. No trace is left. Guys, when God forgives your sin, it's as if it no longer exists. It's not a thing that exists anymore. Now, you might think it does. Years later, you feel guilty about it. You bring it up. You got a dirty conscience about it. But from God's point of view, it's not a thing that exists. You know, Um, there's a a line from a song that I really love, and it it says something like, I can't even remember what you're trying to forget. It's a U2 song. I can't even remember what you're trying to forget. And I think that's the way it is with us when later on, sins we repented of, maybe something we did when we were younger, comes up and bothers us. The Lord's like, "Uh, I got no record of that right? He blots it out. Secondly, God's forgiveness washes and cleanses us. Look at verse 2. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Guys, sin makes us unclean, makes us feel unclean too. Uncleanness and how to be clean is the theme of a whole book of the Bible, Leviticus. Leviticus is all about uncleanness and how to get clean because sin, guys, makes us feel shameful, gives us a feeling we're dirty, but God's forgiveness makes us completely clean. God's forgiveness is a blood covering. Look at verse 7. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. I think, what's that? Well, hyssop is a plant that's kind of like, it's got leaves and, and branches that are hairy. So you can use hyssop like a paintbrush. And the most famous usage of hyssop was in the Exodus. So the very last plague when God's people were, God was extracting his people, Moses was going to extract them out of Egypt and, the, and Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. The last one was the killing of the firstborn. And before he put that plague out over, over Egypt, he told the Israelites to take hyssop, this plant that's kind of like a paintbrush, and take the blood of the lambs they'd all sacrificed, the Passover lambs, take the blood, put it on their doorposts. And so that when the angel of the Lord came through and, you know, killed the Egyptians firstborn, wouldn't kill them. Why? Because the Israelites were just as guilty as the Egyptians. You know, they deserve that judgment just as much. And so this blood protected them. It's called Passover because the angel of the Lord's judgment passed over them. It didn't go into their homes. And so what he's saying here is he's saying that God's forgiveness is a blood covering, right? It's a blood covering. Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so that's what all those animal sacrifices were about. They're not, we don't do those anymore. Um, we don't have the facilities for it anyway. But uh, we don't do those anymore because those were a picture, right? They were a picture of what Christ would do. He is the true Passover lamb. And Marcelo and I were talking about the other day, but like, you know, Passover, everybody would have a lamb, they'd be slaughtered in the temple. There was so much blood, guys, it was insane. There was a creek, the Kidron Brook, and blood would just be streaming through that. I mean, just blood everywhere. I know, it's like a, it'd be a hard thing to kind of be involved with, you know? It's just gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of blood, right? Because the book of Hebrews says that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin, right? It was meant to point forward to Christ, who is the true Passover lamb, the perfectly innocent one whose blood is shed so that God would pass over our sins. Our sins have been covered by his blood. And so for you guys, any time that you feel like your sin is too much or too great to be forgiven by God, remember that your forgiveness is blood-covered, okay? Your forgiveness doesn't depend on you. It depends on the power of that blood, and there is no sin in this room that is more powerful than the blood of Christ. You might think yours is. That's just pride, by the way. There's no sin in this room that is more powerful than the blood of Christ. Fourthly, God's forgiveness is complete. Look at the end of verse 7. He says, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I love this one. 
Um, I didn't grow up in a, a church-going family. My parents got saved later. But I grew up with a Catholic grandma, and she made sure that I got, you know, at least in the early stages of Catholic training. And so on Wednesdays, I would go to CCD, which is like a Catholic catechism thing. And I loved it, by the way. I don't have bad stories about nuns and stuff. They were super nice to me. I had a good time. And it was great, too, because you got these little medals. So you'd, like, memorize, you know, the Our Father or the Hail Mary or whatever. You get a little medal for it. So you like, St. Christopher. Or they're all for different things, you know. Like, there's a guy for, you know, patron saint of lost things. And there's one for traveling and all these things. So you collect these, and they were cool. And I don't know where they are. I would still like to have them. It was also really cool because I learned about the Trinity, as a young kid, you know, which is a great gift, you know, in elementary school, learned about the Trinity, learned about how Jesus is both God and man, learned about the Sermon on the Mount, which was super captivating at that time, learned about the cross and the resurrection. And I always had believed in God, and I believed that I was a sinner and something needed to be fixed. And so I was intent to know how does that happen. So that's what I'm kind of listening for, right? And then the way the nuns explain it to me is that, you know, I have this soul, it's a perfectly white thing initially, but every time I sin, there's a black spot on it, right? And, and the thing is, to go to heaven, to be accepted by God, not to go to hell, would be to have a soul that's perfectly white again. And so the question is like, how do I get a soul that's perfectly white again? You know? and, but the answer they gave to me was not an answer that I thought like, would work for me, which was, you go to confession, right? You confess the sins. Um, he tells you what to do as far as usually reciting things or sometimes making things right. And then you'd be clean temporarily. So that's the trick. And like, even as a kid, I'm like, unless I get hit by a bus coming right out of the confession booth, like, this isn't going to work, you know? Like, I'm going to have something on there. There's no way this is going to work. And so it was really cool is, you know, when I was 13, I heard the gospel for the first time. The news that, like, that Jesus, if you trust in him and turn from your sin, you get made clean permanently. And as a 13-year-old, I was like, okay, that'll work for me, you know? Like, this is something that'll work for me. It was such good news. God's forgiveness, guys, is complete, whiter than snow. God's forgiveness is intentional forgetfulness. Check this out, verse 9. It says, he says, hide your face from my sin. Guys, if we trust in Christ, God refuses to acknowledge our sin. And he uses all kinds of image for this because it's really hard for us to believe because normal human forgiveness, we kind of always kind of think about it. Unless God really gives us the power to forgive, it's very hard to push it out of our minds. But God says that when he forgives us, he pushes it out of his mind. Um, he uses images like in Jeremiah 31. He says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Isn't that awesome? So God doesn't forget things, but what he is doing is he's choosing not to think of them. He doesn't dwell on them. He doesn't think of them. When he thinks of your name, when he thinks of you, when he sees you, he does not think of your sin. Isn't that amazing? And he uses all kinds of images to assure us of that. In verse 9, he says he hides his face from it, right? In, in Isaiah um, 38, it says he throws it behind his back. You know, all these images so that we'll believe him. You know, he's like, seriously, guys, I'm not thinking about your sin. You know, I cover my eyes. You know, I forgot about it. I throw it behind my back. In Micah 9, it says, you cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. Guys, the deepest part of the sea we know about is the Mariana Trench. It's 36,070 feet deep, and it may not be the deepest place. Okay, just so you know, like a commercial airliner flies a lot of times lower than that, okay? The Mariana Trench, the depths of the sea, are deep enough to hide Mount Everest. It's deep enough to hide Mount Everest. It can hide your sin. He casts in the depths of the sea. He says in, uh, in Psalm 103, he says, just to try and prove it to us, he goes, I've put it as far as the east is from the west from you. Like there's you, there's your sin, it's as far as the east is from the west. You guys realize you can measure north to south, right? North pole to south pole, we can measure. We need a certain amount of miles. Can you measure east to west? You can't. It's an infinite distance. There's no way to do that. It's as far as it could possibly be. 
Why does God say all this? It's to assure us that when he forgives us, it's complete. It's gone when we trust in him. And he forgives us, guys, instantaneously. This is the crazy thing about the story back in 2 Samuel. So remember Nathan said, you are that man. And David responds with, I've sinned against the Lord. And you know what Nathan says? The Lord has also taken away your sin. You will not die. Now, there would be a bunch of consequences, which he enumerates in there, but not the one he deserved. You're forgiven. You will not die. It's instantaneous. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God forgives you instantaneously, or do you think he's watching for you to kind of do right for a while? Like, well, you know, and we do this, don't we? Like, oh, I forget. Well, let me just watch you for a while and make sure you really mean it. He forgives instantaneously, guys. That's what it's like to be forgiven. But he gives even more. <laughs> this last point is cool, too. He gives us freedom. The, the really exciting thing about the gospel, guys, is that it doesn't just include forgiveness for what you've done, but freedom from what you become. Okay? The gospel gives us not only freedom, forgiveness from what we've done, but freedom from what we've become. So let's look lastly at this last point, which is God offers great freedom. You guys know Monday was a holiday. Not a well-known holiday, but it was Juneteenth, and Juneteenth is a holiday that kind of reminds us of our shameful past as a country. Juneteenth commemorates June 19, 1865, which was the day that the slaves in Texas knew, finally knew that they were freed by the Emancipation Proclamation, which was given two years before. Okay, so these people spent two extra years in slavery not knowing that Lincoln had set them free. Okay, and that's what Juneteenth is about. And um, I think, guys, there's a lot of believers that are in the exact same situation spiritually. That Christ has set us free by his cross and resurrection. He's not only forgiven us, but set us free. And yet we tend to live as if we have only get forgiveness, but no freedom. And so um, this last point is super important. He gives us freedom, guys. What does that freedom look like? Because I've been praying for you guys. Like Some of us here need to experience a spiritual Juneteenth today. So what does that freedom look like? If freedom looks like a new heart, look at verse 10. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He says in verse 12, uphold me by a willing spirit. If you put those together, God offers us a heart or a spirit that is clean, right, and willing. Isn't that cool? How would you like to have a heart that is clean, right, and willing? A heart that is pure, loyal, and committed. Don't you love it when like, okay, so you had like a bad heart and you had a bad heart all day. Then God gives you repentance of your sin. Maybe you're like super annoyed at your kids or your spouse or at your work or something. Just You're just completely on edge, which is not a biblical word. Don't confess on edge. Um, but uh, you have that and then God somehow like breaks you of it. How do you feel? Doesn't it feel so good? Doesn't it feel so good to have a right heart all of a sudden? What about a willing heart? You know, there's certain things that God has commanded and we're just like, every time we read the Bible, we're like, oh, shoot, that's in there. I should have known not to read there. You know, there's that thing you don't want to do. And then God gives you a willing heart. And you're like, this is good. I love God's law. Wow, that's so good of him to, to call me to do that. I will do this, you know, with his power, with his help. Guys, the gift of God here is freedom is a right and a willing heart. And this word create here is a word that's only used of God creating things. There are words that are used for humans too to like, create a statue or, you know, create a boat or something like that. This word is just a word that's only used for God's creation because only he can give it. What else does freedom look like? It looks like closeness restored. Look at verse 11. He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now in the Old Testament, guys, the Holy Spirit was not spoken of usually as being in people. 
very few exceptions, mostly he would come upon people to empower them, and he would leave. (laughs) In fact, David saw that happen to Saul. Very personally, he saw the Holy Spirit depart from Saul, and he saw Saul's life completely unravel and become this tormented mess in sin. And so David is desperate. Don't let your Holy Spirit leave from me. Now, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant time, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us. He will not take his Holy Spirit from us, but we can feel a sense of the loss of his presence, can't we? Like when we're in sin and when we're hardened by sin, we become numb to his presence. We, you know, a couple weeks ago we did Psalm 139. He's always with us, but we don't feel that when we're lost in sin. And so when we repent of our sin, ask him for a fresh experience of his presence, and it will satisfy you way more than sin, right? It'll satisfy you way more. In fact, the third freedom is joy restored. Look at verse 12. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Guys, we are so miserable in sin, aren't we? We're miserable in sin, you know? And when we resist repenting, we're resisting our own joy. We're crazy like that, you know? It's like, no, I'm having a great time. No, you're not. You know, look at verse 8. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Anybody broken a bone? You know, that's what it feels like when we're stuck in, 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 in unrepentance. It's like it's just grinding. As Psalm 32 says that it's like the fever heat of summer. We know what that's like, you know? It, it, it's, it, and so repenting is turning to joy. And I just say, turn to him today and get the joy of your salvation back. You know, the, the most miserable person in the world is a Christian with one leg in, one leg out, right? I mean, people that are all in the world and just loving the world, they're having a type of fun, Right? Nothing like being a Christian, but it's, it's a type of fun. And then there's the Christian who experiences much adversity but has great joy in the adversity. And then there's the person with one leg, one out. Miserable, right? It's like every, you guys ever go boating and you don't have the boat totally secure and you got one leg on the boat, one leg on the dock, and it starts separating, you don't know what to do? Like, that's what it's like, right? Like, this can only last so long. It's miserable, And that joy, guys, that we get when we return fuels the last two, which is witness and worship. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. This is so cool, guys. God's forgiveness made David a witness, right? God redeemed David's sin and story so that countless millions of people would know. People that think they've gone way too far to come home would know that they can come home. Like he used this. And David just sang. This is a song, right? This is David singing of the one. Who, who saved him. You know, when people solve great problems of ours, we want to tell other people, right? Like, you ever see, like, people go, like, stuff like, um, uh, on Facebook, they'll just write, like, hey, anybody know a good electrician? Those are, like, the most exciting posts for people. I don't know why. It's like, it's like, oh, I know a guy, you know? Like, I had this situation, and every time I turned the light switch, like, a fire would start, and he came, and he fixed it, and he made it right, right? We're excited to tell people about things that people that have solved our problem. We're always like, oh, yeah, I got a guy. Don't you love having a guy? The guy that can do the thing, right? Guys, when we think of Jesus, we think he solved our greatest problem. It would make all the sense in the world to be out there going, I know a guy that can do this, right? Um, Witness, worship. Look at verse 14. Then we're almost done here. It says, David says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. You hear the worship? Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you do not delight in a sacrifice, or I would give it. And you will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. 
Then you will delight in right sacrifices and in burnt offerings and whole offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. There's a question I have here. Does God want sacrifices or not? <laughs> when you read this passage, it's interesting because sacrifices were a key part of Old Testament worship, right? It was, it was worship and it was giving, right? It was giving because that's expensive. You're going to bring a bowl, you're going to bring something like that, that's expensive. It was a way of giving. And the question here that I have is, does God, did God want those or not? Does he want physical worship like that or does he not want physical worship like that? He says, on the one hand, you don't delight in sacrifices or I would give it. You're not pleased with it. And then later he says, you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and they'll be offered on. Which is it? Does God want them or not? God does want our physical worship and our giving. He does want it, but he doesn't want it without or before repentance. Because our human response is a lot of times when our heart's not right and we're in sin, is to cover it with things, right? It's like, let's bring an offering. Let's get more, let's do more service. Let's do more things, you know? Let's, let's give some money. But he says here that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That's what he wants. And so God won't take our external worship instead of our surrendered hearts. He's not like, oh, you won't surrender your heart, but I'll take that bull. No. He said in the Psalms, he goes, you know what? If I was hungry, I wouldn't even tell you. All the bulls are mine. I don't need your bull. But he does, guys, he does love our giving. He does love our worship. He does love our service when it's a reflection of a heart surrendered to him. And that's what freedom looks like, guys. Freedom looks like worshiping from a heart that is completely surrendered to God. Isn't that a great feeling? Even if you're not in that place right now, you know that's a good feeling. To worship God with a completely surrendered heart. And then, yes, give him all the physical worship. He loves that too. But the thing he wants is brokenness. And I love this because, guys, God's not hard to please. He's not asking for perfection in this, is he? He's asking for brokenness. There's a big difference. He's asking for surrender and brokenness. He's not asking for perfection. That's something, with the Holy Spirit doing it, could happen right now in your life. You could give him brokenness. You could give him surrender. I heard a story this week, and um, I was like, oh, that's a great story to end with. And then I went to like, kind of look it up, and then there were a bunch of versions of the story. So the story has become kind of a bit of a legend, but I think it's an important story anyway. And the version that I heard was that there was a man in Spain, and he had, it was a father, and his son, and as the son was growing up, you know, teenager and kind of getting older, they started to clash, right? This happens, right? Started a clash, and they got big arguments, and, 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 and the, the son said, well, then I'm leaving, and the father was like, great, leave, don't come back. You know, and he leaves, and later the father's just really feeling terrible about this, but he can't find his son. And so he decides he's going to take out an ad in the paper, and so he puts this ad in the paper that says, um, uh, Paco, which is his son's name, he says, Paco, um, all is forgiven, please come home. You know, all is forgiven, please come home. And he put this out, and he said, meet me in the town square, you know, at noon on Saturday. And when the father came, he was pretty nervous. He didn't know if his son was going to show up. There were seven Pacos there that day. <laughs> right? Why? Because this needs universal, isn't it? There's a universal need for forgiveness, for cleansing, and to come home. And to come home to God. And that's what Psalm 51 shows us. It shows us how to come home. Let's pray. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.